Some bloke called Archie Duke was hungry and he shot an ostrich. What were the main causes of World War One? Clause 231 of the Treaty of Versailles would have you believe that Germany was entirely to blame for the war. That's the official record. That's what it says at the end. Even Germany signed up to it. But is that true? In today's podcast, we're going to try and come to some sort of an uh, agreement about who was actually to blame for the outbreak of the First World War. And I'm joined, as always, by my learned colleague over here. So let's, should we kick off with the, the broad stroke, shall yeah, we? Let's, okay. let's talk about the, the way that's easy to remember it, the main... Okay, so what are then the main causes of World War One? So, easy way to remember the causes of World War One are to think of the word main. So, the M stands for militarism, A for alliances, I for imperialism, and the N for nationalism. And if you sort of hook it onto that, and you bring in all of the various uh, specific details, then you'll do well to remember all the causes of the so, First World War. All right, then in the in the run up then to the First World War, militarism. Is, is a big thing. You've got all of these military powers. So who's, who's really leading the pack on that front? Okay, so with militarism, there's, uh, I mean, there's more than one aspect to militarism. The first aspect is the build-up of armies, and that's traditionally associated with the Germans, the Russians, and the French. Now, you know, you can go way back and you can say that Europe has got a history of conflict between all of the major powers, but in the run-up to 1914... Yeah, I suppose the years between 1900 and 1914, Russia um, increases its army to 1.5 million men by 1914. The French have a million men in their army, and the Germans 0.8 million men. Uh, and don't forget that just because the Germans have got less men than the uh, French and the Russians, it doesn't mean that their army is inferior in any no, way. Absolutely in fact, not. the German army is by a long way the most effective fighting yeah. force in Europe, probably in the world at the time. So they are a considerable threat. Mm. And because they are such a threat, as this new and um, growing nation, the French, the Russians, feel like they have to compete and they build up their army. So you end up with an arms race yeah. in terms of soldiers and weapons. One of the key things to remember, of course, about the build-up of the armies is that it accelerates. Mm. From 1900 to 1910, there's a small increase in general, but following the second Moroccan crisis where it appears the war is inevitable and everybody's gearing up ready for it, there is suddenly a massive increase in the number of troops and that's where you get the really big build-up. Yeah. And um, the second aspect to it, of course, is, is the much more specific rivalry between the British and the Germans with the navies. So um, it all starts with the building of the Dreadnought, the first one in 1906. Um, the Kaiser, who's always been, I suppose, jealous... The, is the mm, best way definitely. of putting it of, of British naval power feels that Germany if it wants to be taken seriously as this new upcoming nation it has to have um, a navy to mm. compete with the British and there's good reasons for it as well it's not just because they want to have the, the military power it's because the Germans believe and the Kaiser believes that a navy is the way for them to create this place in the sun yeah. that he wants this empire there's, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of stuff in the Naval Arms Race podcast that you can listen to to get extra detail on that. I think my question would be, <clears throat> you have to decide for yourselves, does all of these parties gearing up ready for a war make a war more likely? That's the thing you've got to think yeah. about, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, and it's definitely one of these underlying causes of the war where you have all these 
really powerful countries who are already rivals in so many ways absolutely armed to the teeth mm. the British and the Germans in particular with their navies I mean one of the things with the arms race is the, the British army actually decreases it's the only one that gets smaller between 1900 and 1914 because they put so much of their effort yeah. into the navy but the overall effect is that you have a Europe which is highly militarised and they're just waiting for an excuse yeah but I would say, and this links nicely into the next one, the yeah, yeah. alliances, that there was a real good reason why Germany were building mm. themselves up, because they felt that they were surrounded, yeah. and that the British and the French had this policy of encirclement, yeah. which is alliances. And the, the key thing with the alliances is you have to imagine that there are two armed camps very much staring at each other. And you have to remember the geography of the situation. The Triple Alliance is known as the Central Powers for a reason. They're sitting there in the centre of Europe. And certainly, as we've just said, from Germany's point of view, they feel as though they are surrounded. Remember that the nightmare for Germany, the nightmare scenario, is a two-front war. And everything they do is designed to lessen that threat or find a way to deal with it. So the alliance with Austria-Hungary isn't just based around the fact that they're racially very similar and culturally very similar. It's also around the fact that if they have Austria-Hungary on side, they have some insurance against a Russian attack. Mm -hmm. And as you're going to see when we get into the actual events of 1914, nobody really considered the way that the alliances would be a drag on each other. The, the image is of mountaineers all tied together on a rope and if one of them falls they suddenly start pulling all of the others as well you talk about mountaineers everyone being dragged in together one person falls they all fall yeah. um, you know that is the, that's the essentially the reason why the alliance system is considered to be a cause of the first mm. world war because without the alliances then what could have been a very localised yeah very small between Austria the Serbians yeah becomes it escalates, it escalates yeah, yeah. Into, a, into a European wide, and then yeah. when Britain get involved, a, a worldwide yeah. conflict. And you know what I was going to say as well is that the alliances they directly affect each other yeah. in as much that the triple alliance is created, and then the French and the Russians who feel like they are yeah. isolated from the main affairs of Europe, they're on the outskirts. If you, as you mentioned, the central powers, so yeah. the French and the Russians become natural friends as well. Yeah. And the British are very reluctant partners yeah. because they don't want to be friends with no. France or Russia particularly. Because history certainly doesn't... No. They've been at war with France for a couple of hundred years, more or less. They've only just finished another conflict with Russia in the Crimea. Yeah. They're not natural bedfellows, no. but it is a reaction. Which is the other thing I was going to say. I've remembered what ah. I've forgotten now. <laughs> and it was this. One of the enduring ironies of this is that all of these alliances are defensive in nature... But because they are secret, yes, yeah, nobody yeah. knows. No. So, um, France and Russia have made an alliance, which is we will help each other in the event of an attack, but mm -hmm. Germany does not know that that's the terms of the alliance. Yeah. They just know there's an alliance between the countries on either side of them. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I suppose if we're going to link this in directly to what we're talking about, you know, why is it caused the First World War? Well, the bottom line is, we've mentioned it just briefly, with the assassination at Sarajevo, you end up with Austria declaring war on Serbia and the Russians backing the Serbs up, mm -hmm. Germans backing up their Austrian allies and then the Schlieffen plan comes into effect. Comes into effect because, um, yeah. they, as you said, they don't really know what the terms of the agreement between yeah. France and Russia are. 
they're assuming that Russia are definitely going to get involved, so therefore France are definitely going to yeah. get involved. Let's take out the French because they're the lesser threat. Yeah. We'll do it in six weeks, and then they go through Belgium, and that's really what brings, brings in Britain. 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 But of course, there's another reason that Britain's involved, which of course brings us to the eye yep. of Maine. And it also helps explain why Britain comes out of this splendid isolation, why Britain actually gets itself involved in uh, European affairs. And that's imperialism. That's this desire of the, uh, of the Kaiser to have an empire for Germany. It's yeah. Weltpolitik. Yeah, and his place in the sun. Correct, yeah. And, you know, and to get this, he knows he's going to upset Britain because mm-hmm. Great Britain is the number one imperial power. Yeah. Great Britain is the world's uh, leading naval power. And for him to have his place in the sun, for him to achieve Weltpolitik, he needs to challenge Britain in both yeah. those respects. Because there's very, by the end of the uh, 1800s and the early 1900s, there's very little colonial territory unclaimed. And if you're going to get something, you're going to have to rub up against one of the big colonial powers, which is generally Britain, of course. And if, you know, when you're looking at the build-up to the First World War, if we're going to link something specific into imperialism, then the events in Morocco, in the First and the Second Moroccan Crisis, they link nicely into imperialism, because you have this idea that European countries, France, Spain, Germany, they've all got this interest in Africa... And Morocco is one of the last places where they can really try to assert their yeah. imperial sort of intentions. And it's also very telling that all of these imperial powers rock up to the conference mm. in 1906. And with modern eyes, you look at it and it, what business is it of theirs? Yeah. What happens in Morocco? <laughs> and it's only through the, the lens of, um, of imperialism that you can understand what's going on there. Yeah. And, you know... It, don't discount how important imperialism is, because if you're going to link it into these crises, the second Moroccan crisis, or the Agadir crisis, it really genuinely brought Europe to the brink of war. You Absolutely. Know, there were gunboats, the Panther was sent to Agadir. There was a real possibility that war was going to erupt between... Uh, the major nations yeah. of Europe. And as we said, that accelerates the militarism thing because it, it does appear that this is it. This is what's going to actually cause the war. And because it's a naval thing, because it's yeah. a threat to Gibraltar, because it looks like a direct challenge to British power, then that really brings Britain into it. And from that point, there's no, um, there's no chance of really avoiding Britain being involved. Yeah. And, you know, the three things that we looked at so far, the M, the A, the I, they all link into each other here. Um, there's connections between militarism, like you said, with the naval race and the alliance system, yeah. because uh, Germans, they feel humiliated having to back down yeah. twice over Morocco, which in turn means that the Germans and the Austrians become more sort of closely knit, especially with events in Bosnia as well, yeah. which we'll look at, I suppose, in the next one, which is the N, yeah. Yeah. which is the nationalism. And just, and just before we get on to nationalism, yep. I'm just going to say if you can hear any banging outside. <laughs> we're, having, we're having a bit of remodelling done on the history department, and that's them actually removing bits of detritus out of the way. <laughs> so, nationalism then. <clears throat> nationalism is uh, basically patriotism taken to the nth degree. Yes. Rather than it being, I believe that my country is good and I am proud to be a member of my country, my country is better yeah. than the others. My country is better. I am better than you because I am mm-hmm. French, German, Belgian. 
Yeah, and that's you know that's the difference between yeah nationalism and straightforward patriotism. Yeah, and one of the one of the key areas, geographical areas, you have to remember when we talk about nationalism is the Balkans, and the Balkans is a mess. The very word balkanization came to mean splitting things up into fiddly little bits that didn't really work, and the the patchwork of racial, religious, and cultural groups stuck into these tiny little countries in yeah. the Balkan area is a powder keg. Yeah, and and this is the reason why Austria-Hungary is absolutely central. Yeah, to the building of the First yeah. World War, you have this enormous but crumbling empire yeah. in Central and Southeastern Europe. They, it is a it's an empire of many different nationalities, yeah. different religions, different ethnicities, uh, different languages. It was difficult enough to um, control in the sort of pre-nationalistic sort yeah. of era. But by the time we get to the 1900s, all of these small nations, and in particular the Serbs, the Bosnians, the Slavic countries, that are, um, or groups that are within Austria-Hungary, they are becoming more and more determined to assert their rights and a lot of that is because of Russia's very vocal support mm. of the Slavs. You know, yeah. They see themselves and they project themselves as the protectors of the Slavs. Mm. And so Russia, they are stirring up trouble yeah. within Austria-Hungary. Yeah. And this is what leads to not just the Bosnian crisis when yeah. Turkey's crumbling and Austria-Hungary annexes Bosnia, the Serbs and the Bosnian Serbs Start saying, well, hang on, we don't want this. Mm. We don't. We are yeah. fed up being part of empires. We yeah. want to rule ourselves, and it's no coincidence that that's the exact area where the assassination yeah. takes place. That's right, because the, the, this whole idea of independence for these small countries is a direct existential threat to Austria, as I've said before in the uh, in the Serbian Crisis podcast. If if they let one group of them go then it's, mm. it's like a spring that's loaded, isn't it? Yeah. And if, if one bit gives way, the rest of the Austro-Hungarian Empire is just going to fly apart into a thousand million pieces. Yeah. And so that's why Austria comes down very, very hard on especially Serbia. And that's going to come really, really into focus in the events of 1914. So I suppose just before we move on to 1914 yeah. Yeah. then, so can we... Yeah. yeah. How, what do we What do we think about the main causes? What do we reckon? Okay. So, what in terms of which one's probably most? Yeah. Which one do we think is the biggest threat to peace well, in the run up? Well, I suppose that the most obvious one, because it's it's armies and it's navies, is this militaristic yeah. attitude, and everyone's building up, and everyone wants to be the most powerful. But I, th- I think it's almost impossible to separate them all out. Yeah. Because one of them. All impact on another. Yeah, the fact that you've got nationalism leads to more militarism in yeah. Austria-Hungary, and then that militarism leads to more tension between yeah. the alliances. And the, the militarism makes a conflict more likely, but yeah. it's the alliances that make the size of the conflict yeah. more likely to be bigger. And then the it's, rivalries with the imperialism is yeah. increasing the tension. So th- they are all they are genuinely connected. So the, the trick is going to be to look at the specific questions and see which ones and in which balance apply most to whatever question you've got in front yeah. of you. Yeah. I mean, and if we're going to talk about specifically about exams, it's very likely that you'll get what was the biggest threat to peace. Yeah. And it will probably ask you to make a decision between one of the crises. Yeah. 
or if not between the crises, one of the crises and then one of the other aspects, yeah. such as the arms race or um, the naval race or something yeah. along those lines. So you, you need to know them all and you will need to make a judgment on the most important. Yeah. But just be aware that, that it is all connected. Yeah, definitely. The bottom line. Yeah. So that's the, that sort of set the table. Um, and the, the the powder keg is there and it's waiting for something to light the fuse. And here comes the chap who's just ready to do it, coming out of a sandwich shop on a street in Sarajevo. Uh, so let's let's talk about um, Franz Ferdinand and the Archduke. Yes. So what do we know about him? Well, <laughs> one thing I'll say about the, the, the Habsburgs in general, um, they are... A family which is rocked by um, problems. They are not very popular mm. outside of Austria. They're not even that popular in their main partner, mm. uh, Hungary. Um, the Habsburgs, are, they're an old ruling family who are out of touch. The thing about Franz Ferdinand, though, is he's a reformer. And um, when he goes to Sarajevo on that day, he has a programme in his head that he's going to give more rights to the Bosnian mm. Serbs and the Serbs of Serbia don't like that because they think it's going to placate them so one of the reasons why the Black Hand decided to act is because they feel if they don't act there and then they're going to lose an opportunity mm. to get the Serbian people behind them mm. so Franz Ferdinand's an odd one yeah. he's, you know he's, he's not the most effective uh, member of the royal family he's actually quite unpopular he, he had a really bad decision with who he married for example so his whole family yeah. uh, f- uh, f- actually forced him to disown his, uh, the, the claim to the throne for his children so you know he's allowed to be the next archduke yeah. but his kids aren't no. so he's um, yeah he's an odd person uh, but he's an ideal target isn't he mm. and he's in the wrong place at the wrong time wrong. or the right place in the right time yeah. <laughs> depending on your point of view and the point of view that we're talking about is the point of view of the Black Hand of course uh, which is a terrorist organisation um, and their stated aim was to realise the national ideal the unification of all Serbs and they were quite upfront about saying in, in fact in their in their sort of um, constitution if you like I mean they've got a seal they've got a little symbol and they've got a written constitution but they actually say this organisation prefers terrorist action to cultural activities it will therefore remain secret it's it's one of that plethora of secret organisations and anarchist cells that spreads across Europe at the turn of the century and it will link it into the nationalism yeah definitely the the conversation we've just had you know these are ultra nationalists these are people as you said, they are willing to use violence to achieve their own. Eager. Eager to yeah, use violence. They want to. Yeah. They, they want to become martyrs, mm. essentially. Yes. And, uh, and also, uh, um, I think two or three of the, the assassins were, were suffering from tuberculosis. They, were, they mm. knew they were going to die anyway, so yeah. they kind of had a death wish. Yeah. Um, they were determined to go out as heroes rather than just yeah. nobodies, as it were. So there's, there's all the details about what actually happens on the day and how much of a, a, a fluke, really, it was that Franz Ferdinand actually gets hit. It's a, it's a comedy of errors. But we're now, so we, we are in a situation where the Archduke has been shot by a member of the Black Hand. And then the repercussions of that start. Triggering of the alliances. Yeah, that's where it goes. So the first step 
and it's important, I think, not to underplay this one, is that even before anything happens, Germany has promised its support yes. to Austria-Hungary. The, the so-called blank check. Yeah, and that's really important, because Austria-Hungary, I don't think, would go as strong as they do no. if they didn't have that guarantee of support. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, and this is... If we start talking about who's to blame for the war here, mm. I mean, it, the obvious thing is to suggest that, well, you know, it was a Serbian... Yeah. shot an Austro-Hungarian and then the war was initially declared between those two yeah. but Austria-Hungary has been bolstered by this blank check that the yeah. Kaiser has, has given to them we will support you no matter what you do yeah. and when you know you have the world's most powerful militarised state yeah at your beck and call. And you are facing a very small country. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes you realise why Austria are so aggressive. Yeah. But they also know that they are risking bringing uh, Russia into this conflict. Yeah. But again, because they know Germany will back them up, mm. they're still willing to push their ult the 10-point ultimatum onto Serbia. And unless they get all 10 points, it will be war. And it's, it's worth pointing out that this ultimatum is not designed to be something that Austria, uh, that Serbia can <laughs> accept. The, there, is, there is no question here that Austria is trying to avoid a conflict. This is an excuse. Yes, this is exactly a, what this it is. is yeah. This is an excuse that they have been looking for to crush Serbia, and they are going to take it. So the ultimatum they present, those 10 points, are outrageous. Yeah. They, are, they, they really are. And yet, Serbia rolls over and accepts all of them except one. Yeah. Point six, they don't accept because it would essentially let Austria-Hungary to be in control of their legal system. Yeah. And, you know, that's, without getting into too much, that's eroding their sovereignty. sovereignty. But even then, they're willing to refer it off yes, to an are. international yeah. tribunal that Serbia is willing to come to some sort of an arrangement, but that's not what Austria-Hungary is no, after. That's definitely not what they're after. No. So um, this is where... Um, the declarations of war yeah. come in and the, and the alliances are triggered so we already know that Austria want this war uh, they feel confident of Germany's support yeah. they declare war on Serbia on the 28th of July Yeah. the Russians and this again links into previous discussions yeah. they've let Serbia down already once yeah. the Bosnian crisis they're not going to do it again so they mobilise their forces against Austria, which is basically like saying, well, we are going yeah. to support Serbia. We're and that mobilisation is the key, it's the trigger for the Schlieffen plan. Yeah. Because the moment it looks as though the, the, the plan for the Schlieffen plan states that from the moment Russia starts its mobilisation, you have six weeks to take out France. And at that point, Germany does not have a plan B. They nope. do not have a plan to just take on Russia on its own. And therefore they make their attack straight across yep. at uh, France through Belgium. Which then is the trigger for Britain. Because Britain yeah. uses it. I mean, the thing is, Britain would probably have got involved anyway mm. because they didn't want... There's all sorts of reasons. I mean, they already had this rivalry with the navies, rivalry with empires. They also didn't want someone like Germany controlling the, the coast opposite yeah. Great Britain. You know, it was a threat yeah. to national security. So Britain would probably have got involved anyway. But the reason they give, yeah, and it's the Germans think it's laughable, is that the Germans have broken the Treaty of London yeah. of 1839, where everybody promised to 
protect Belgium's yeah, yeah. neutrality. And the Kaiser is so surprised by this because he really didn't think Britain yeah. would fight for Belgium. No. He says that they've gone to war over a scrap of paper. Yeah. But again, even then, that's not to him a particular problem because the British army is small, it's mm-hmm. a contemptible little army, as he says. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's not something to worry about. So that doesn't really weigh heavily on his conscience. I think. W- it then comes as a massive surprise to him that the British and the Belgians put up so much of a fight. Yeah. Um, and after that, really, it's basically, it, it's bookkeeping with all of the various parties. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it with is, all yeah. the various parties just going, right, who haven't we declared war on? Let's, yeah. let's just get the yeah. paperwork in order um, and do that. So if we just, should we just run through the date so everybody's clear? Yeah, yeah, you might as well. Right, so the 28th of June, 1914, that is the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. The next thing is the blank check, and that is issued on the 6th, 6th of July. July. Yeah. Then the 23rd of July is when the ultimatum goes through. The 24th of July is when Russia formally tells Serbia that they yeah, will support them. Support, yeah. And then you've got the first declaration of war. And as we've already said, that's the 28th of July, and that is Austria-Hungary declaring war on Serbia. The signal to the Germans that they need to do something is the mobilisation of Russia, and that happens on the 30th of July. And the reason you know it's the signal is that on the 1st of August, Germany declares war on Russia and then declares war on France on the 3rd of August. And they enter Belgium. Cheeky little thing there, of course, is that they (laughs) enter Belgium before they've declared war. Which is the following day. Yeah. Um, and of course, so they declare war on the fourth of August, the following day, which is also the same day that Britain declares war on Germany. And then the last two is France declaring war on Germany on the fifth of August. And finally, weirdly, yeah. considering how this all starts, yeah, the one that you'd expect to be the very first declaration is yeah. the last one: yeah. Austria-Hungary declaring war on Russia on the sixth of August. So that's how it happens. It basically spins very, very quickly out of control. It's a, it's a very short space of time, really, over a month. But, you know, the guns yeah. of August uh, and July, sorry. So if, if we had to, if we were going to write our own Clause 231 for our peace treaty, to whom are we going to assign the guilt? You, you, get, to be, you get to be Lloyd George and I'll be Woodrow Wilson. Because I'm tall and thin. <laughs> do you want the historically accurate, or do you want my own personal opinion? Let's have both. All right, okay. Which do you want well, to do first? Well, uh, let's, let's go with what Lloyd George, the quandary that he was in. Mm. Because Lloyd George um, found himself um, in the middle of a general election campaign. Mm. And the people of Great Britain, they wanted revenge. They wanted to squeeze that German lemon until the pits squeaked. And yeah. so they were paying for blood. Yeah. Hang the Kaiser was the slogan that Lloyd George yeah. is re-elected on. So they've got this idea in their heads, Germany is to blame. Lloyd George wants to get re-elected. Mm. So he does what's yeah. natural to politicians, he panders to the yeah. masses. And Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah. uh, and you, you see the same thing in France with, uh, with Clemenceau. Clemenceau. Yeah. The, there's no doubt in their mind. They're, 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 well, they are, to be fair, yeah. the innocent parties in all this. Yeah. They're just sitting there quite happily. The next thing they know, they've yeah. got uh, rampaging Hun coming yes. towards them for the second time in Clemenceau's in, lifetime. In Clemenceau's yeah. lifetime. Yeah. So who, in your opinion, then? Well, who, if you were going to pin the blame, where would you put it? 
Okay. I'm going to be careful there because the, the initial conflict is obviously started by the Austrians mm -hmm. and the Serbians. But I have to be honest, I think the Germans are to blame for turning this into a much bigger conflict than it yeah. necessarily should have been. I absolutely agree with you. What should have been, the, the people who are responsible for the outbreak of hostilities, there's no doubt it's the Austrians. It's, it's on them. Yeah. They engineered a conflict with Serbia. They wanted it, they got it. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's Germany who takes this and just expands it. Yeah. In, in, in some respects, you, you could call it the, the Kaiser's War. Yeah, because there was so much that the Kaiser wanted to achieve, mm. and it wasn't going to happen peacefully. No, it was such a militarized society. I mean, the army virtually ran the country anyway. Yeah, yeah. and so you know, with the, when you add in the the, the naval race, mm. you add in the the drive for a place in the sun, yeah, and this. Schlieffen plan, especially yeah. where the, this paranoia we are encircled, we yeah. have to take out France before Russia. Yeah, it's what kicks it all off. It is. It's, it's what creates yeah. the, in, it creates a European wide and then and a it's, worldwide war. It's it's inexcusable to say that any military machine as well trained and well organised as the German one mm. shouldn't have had a plan B for something else. The fact that they only planned for a general European war tells you what they were expecting and yeah. to an extent what they wanted whether they were aware of it or not agreed lovely that's quite rare for us to finish on such a positive <laughs> note of agreement so I hope that's useful uh, check all your notes because this is quite a complicated bit um, and if it comes up in the exam it could come up in lots of different ways yeah. so do check through all your notes very very detailed um, thank you very much for listening and good luck in your exams <laughs>